Bibles, and let's turn to Genesis chapter 30. We'll be reading verse 1 through to verse 24. This is the reading of God's word. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? She said, here is my maid, Bilhah, who into her that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. So she gave him her maid, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. Rachel's maid, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with, a mighty, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. Then Leah saw that she had stopped bearing. She took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Now, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, Therefore, he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband, so she named him Issachar. 
Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Afterward, her daughter, and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. This is the reading of God's word. We'll call upon the pastor to bring the sermon. Well, after all that uh, good singing, I, I need a drink. Sometimes I have to take a break, but I don't worry about it because I know you can carry the singing without me. So it all works out. Well, let's ask the Lord to bless us. We come to the end of this day, Lord, and we're thankful to be in your house. We come to the end of this day and we're thankful to have your word that we can take up and read. And we come thankful, Lord, that we're here this evening hour and we never come away empty when we look to your word. And so we pray that you would teach us from this challenging, difficult passage. Every word of scripture is profitable to us. And so we pray that by the Holy Spirit, your word would be fruitful in our hearts. And we bow before you in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, you recall last week that we saw the beginning of sorrows, if you will, between uh, Jacob and Leah and Rachel and how this all worked out and, uh, or how it all didn't work out. There was a, a popular saying when we were young. I don't know where it came from. I haven't really spent the time trying to uh, figure out where it came from. doesn't matter. Uh, it's one of those idioms, and, and it's two's a couple, three's a crowd, and two is a couple, and the idea was very simple in the mind of Jacob. I worked seven years, I received Rachel as my wife, and it's perfect. And he works seven years, receives Leah as his wife, and it's a little less than perfect. And then he works seven more years and receives Rachel into his life, and it becomes even more uh, imperfect because all of a sudden turmoil has come to the house. And we find the relationship is a very empty relationship. It's a relationship that, in, as we look at it, we see that the relationship with, with Leah is a relationship for having children only. And the relationship that he has with Rachel is a relationship of love only. And so we have this, this, this dynamic, and it's a dynamic of hostility. Now, you recall... If you think back to chapter 29, that as, as Leah had children successively, there was a message with each, each child, wasn't there? In uh, 29.32, we read that the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely now my husband will love me. 
And then down to verse uh, 33, the Lord has heard that I am unloved. He has therefore given me this son also. And then we have down in uh, 2934, now this time my husband will become attached to me. None of those things happen. And uh, Jacob was as detached uh, at the end as he was in the beginning. And then there was a different emphasis after the birth of son number four. And that was the statement in verse 35, this time I will praise the Lord. And uh, there was seemingly uh, a period uh, of peace or, well, uh, as much peace as you could possibly have in this kind of relationship. Uh, as we look at it, we begin to realize something. Uh, this really <laughs> reads somewhat like a tabloid. Uh, it really does. It's a woman... You know, two women marry the same man. And the whole thing has this tabloid kind of uh, uh, sense or nonsense to it. We mentioned uh, men having more than one wife before. It's important for us to recognize, of course, that there is not one case in Scripture where this ever works out. And the reason why, of course, is that God's design for marriage is a couple, a man and a woman, period, not question mark. And so we have this picture as we begin in chapter 30 tonight of the hostility that is, is raging once again. Now, you might say, how come this is in the Bible? Uh, this, this, this account, and it actually gets avoided like the plague. Uh, it's fascinating when you look through uh, commentaries uh, it just gets sort of passed over and, and not mentioned at all. But it, it's in Scripture for our good because it, first of all, shows us that this is a book of honesty. It shows us the good, it shows us the bad, and it shows us the, the, the war that takes place between these individuals who are a part of God's larger family uh, as well. It shows us that God's children are sinners, and we should never be shocked. Now, the newspaper uh, will say that tomorrow you read, and we won't mention any names because this is, on, this is being recorded, but we'll say that some other pastor out there uh, gets uh, arrested for running off with the church's wealth. Now, you see, this shows you it's definitely not me because we don't have any wealth. But you read tomorrow morning that, that the pastor, and now everybody wants to know. Now, if it had been somebody that had been homeless, we would blame the culture for even allowing somebody to be homeless without ever discussing that issue. Why are these people homeless in the first place? We would bypass that altogether and we would say, this is an awful culture that allows people to be homeless. But if it was somebody that was the pastor that embezzled the money from the church, all of a sudden we would be indignant and everyone that believes in moral uh, relativity would all of a sudden become absolutist and they would say, uh, how wicked this man is. He doesn't live up to the standards of righteousness and, and, and so forth. What a character he is. That's the way our culture operates. We need to understand that God's children are sinners. And while we might be deeply hurt when one of God's children in our own family, in our church family, uh, in the larger church family, while we might be deeply disappointed when that type of event happens, 
where shame is brought into the family. Shame is brought into the church family. Shame is brought into the church family at large. While we might have the hurt of that, we should never be shocked by it because we are sinners. We're not perfect. We're being made perfect in the passage of time, and ultimately we shall be perfect at the end of our time, and we shall be made righteous, perfectly righteous, and we shall stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so it's important to see that this passage, passages like this, are important passages, and they warrant our attention. And then, of course, it serves as a reminder that we are not to violate the standards of marriage as set forth by God. Marriage is not the domain of the government. Marriage is the domain of a holy God who has ordained marriage, and we are to maintain the standards. It is, is disobedience of the highest order uh, when this country, uh, under, under its governance, uh, went against God's word. And we're paying the price of that tonight big time because everything that has happened to our culture since that time has been the, the, the pushing of the card of immorality uh, by groups, special interest groups that surround us. And so we're to see and recognize that we do reap what we sow. And then, of course, we need to know that Israel was becoming full of pride. And uh, uh, Joseph, or Jacob, pardon me, was one of those who was becoming proud. As well, this, this serves as a reminder, there are principles of marriage and the relationship that are set forth in this passage. They may not be apparent at the outset, but they are in actuality very much manifested in our culture. Uh, we live in a culture that can only be described as sex crazed. And we need to understand something that, that we have here a picture of these two women. Leah has all the children and no love. And Rachel has no children and all the love. And we need to see a, a picture of where this is leading us. Our, our culture believes uh, somehow that uh, having children is a sign of love. If that's the case, how come there's so much divorce? How come there's so much abortion? How come there's so much abandonment of children? If, 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 if all we need to do is, is teach um, boys and girls where other little boys and girls come from, uh, then you would think that we would have this licked by now. In actuality, we have created, uh, by our education system, a mammoth wasteland of neglect uh, in the lives of many children. And so here is the, the discontented Rachel. She wants children. She should want children. And uh, we understand that there are times, for whatever reasons, that, that, that some couples don't have children. I understand that. I know that. Uh, we went quite a while before the Lord blessed us in the way in which he blessed us. But we're not to deliberately say, well, we're married and I'm pursuing my career and I don't want kids in the way. That's disobedient to God. God has called man and woman to be fruitful and multiply. And, and some are very good at mathematics and have been able to multiply greatly and others uh, are, uh, have a little less in their multiplication. But we see and recognize that here is a frustrated woman, and in, in verse uh, 1, we see that she has borne no children, Rachel, and she is jealous of her sister. 
And now she goes to Jacob and she says, give me children or else I die. Now we begin to see the hostility here. Here's Leah, who is rightfully the first wife. Now we understand the hijinks that brought all that about, but she is the wife. She is the first wife. And in actuality, we have a, a forcing of almost an adulterous relationship here uh, with Rachel being on board. Matters not that she was the number one choice. It matters as to who is married and who is legitimately the wife, and she is the wife. And so here's this, this anger, this hostility that's building up. And now all of a sudden we see the fight between Jacob and Rachel. And it comes because of the dynamic of the family. You recall, of course, that it was love at first sight for Jacob. And, and he loved Rachel. Now all of a sudden there's hostility. And we have this picture of, of once again the disobedience of, of going against God's word and it fosters more disobedience and more disobedience and more disobedience. Rachel makes the statement, give me children or I die. And verse 2 tells us that Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. Now that's a very diplomatic way of saying he was ripping mad at her. He was not pleased with her. She should have been happy. You remember you remember that relationship uh, that, that we have in, in 1 Samuel. And here's this wonderful woman, Hannah, and she wants a child. And her husband says, <coughs> excuse me, but I'm your man and aren't I good enough? You, you, know, you know that, don't you? And what's the response? The response is no. No. Wait a minute, I, bring all, I go out and I kill that beef and I bring it home on my shoulder and I do all this. I'm the mighty warrior. I'm Thor the Great and you're telling me that's not good enough? And the answer is that's exactly what I'm telling you. I want a child. And of course, God blessed her with a child, a wonderful child by the name of Samuel. Well, here's the same situation. Jacob is thinking she should be satisfied. She's got Mr. Wonderful as her husband. And I know there's a little bit of an extra problem here with uh, what's her name, right? And all these kids that have come into the, our house. But, but she shouldn't be complaining. So his anger burns. He's, he's mad at her. He's very angry. And now he says, am I in the place of God who has withheld you from the fruit of the womb? Don't blame me because you're childless. It's God. He's withheld children from you. So now we have this hostility a happy household and it's at that point where there should have been a lot of prayer and a lot of understanding and what we have is a reminder of, of, of people that are far away from the mind of God and Rachel here is going to make it worse and here's what takes place now you see Rachel's my, my favorite name and so now we have a Rachel and she's got a cover up for some of the things that this Rachel did. So, uh, well, that's her calling in life. But, but, but here we are. Uh, that's just a, an aside, no charge on that one. So here's, here is the response. This is what happened. We have worldly people. And we get a worldly person by the name of Rachel, and she makes a worldly decision, and it's a horrendous decision. And now she's going to turn her maid into a handmaiden, and her name is 
Bilha, you remember that wonderful name from last week. I've never encountered anyone called that name. Go into her that she may pardon me that she may bear on my knees that through her I too may have children. Now you might say, what in the world is that about? And what it is is an elaborate ceremony where in actuality where the, where the sexual act was taking place, Rachel is present during that time. And then between Rachel and, and Jacob is Bilhah. Now you say, we shouldn't be talking about that. Well, no, we should. This is what happened, and you should know that, and now we know it. And we're not going to go any further than that. The rest is history. But this had become an elaborate ceremony, and it was sanctioned by a man by the name of King Hammurabi. You've heard of him, I'm sure most of you have. Okay, good. So uh, he, this was part of the sanctioning of, of him. Now, th there's only a few things wrong with it. He's not God. He's King Hammurabi. He's not making the rules around here. God is making the rules. And here they are presuming. And remember I mentioned that, that we have to understand that Rachel and Leah didn't come from a godly household. They came from a household that was not as bad as the neighborhood where Jacob had come from. He was sent to, to seek a bride from, uh, from Rebekah's household. But that was not a perfect household. That was not a godly household. And here they are taking the pagan practices of a pagan king who actually wrote some good laws, but because he was not a godly man, a God-fearing man, he wrote some real whoppers. And here's one of them. And now this is supposed to bring a happy ending to the situation. And we begin to see how confused and how skewed Rachel is in her thinking when she decides that she's going to allow this to take place and allow it obviously to take place in her presence. That's how decadent and depraved people can be when they throw God's rule book out and they ignore the principles that they know better then. And they, they understood this, of course, because Abraham had some oral tradition that he had passed on, didn't have a Bible that he was able to say, here's the Bible and I'm gonna give it to my son Isaac and Isaac pass it on to Jacob. However, they were responsible to pass on the law of God given to them, not in tables of stone at that time, but they were responsible to pass on the laws of God as had been taught to them, and they were to have that duplicated son after son after son after son until we have the tables of stone way down the road in Exodus. And so now we see the, the wickedness of this. She gave him, verse 4, her maid Bilhah as a wife. She had no business to do that. Who put her in charge of declaring, this is now your wife? And so this is a woman that is out of control and is not thinking at all. And she happens to be married to a man by the name of Jacob. And he is not thinking at all. And he participates in this sin with her. And Bilhah conceives and bears a son. And now we're going to see her thinking. And this is the kind of, of situational thinking that goes on in our culture. Uh, years ago, a man by the name of Joseph Fletcher wrote a book called Situational Ethics. Some of you have encountered that. Maybe you encountered it in your college days. Maybe you just encountered it by your, your, your reading materials and all that you have, have come, by, uh, come by over the passage of time. And Joseph Fletcher said, now, whatever you conceive as being the loving thing to do, that's what you're to do. 
We're going to measure what's right and wrong by the love factor that's in, in your heart. Now, there's a few problems with that. Problem number one, the heart is desperately wicked. It's a fallen heart. I, I had a lady one time, she said, every time she was giving a rule to her daughter, and uh, her daughter would say, but mom, don't you trust me? Uh, yeah, the, 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 don't you, the ever popular don't you trust me card. Every daughter is equipped with one. But mom, don't you trust me? And she said, I don't know what to say. And I said, I know exactly what to say. And uh, we didn't have Rachel at the time either, but I knew exactly what to say. And what you say is this. You, you look your daughter in the eye, and I won't look my daughter in the eye. <laughs> I let her off the hook for a moment. You look her in the eye, and you, you say to her, honey, I don't even trust myself. That's the answer. We're not to lean on our own understanding. We're to lean on the word of God. We're to trust his word. We're to make decisions based on his word. We're not to wet our fingers and say, well, which way is the old society wind blowing today? What's God say? And here the family is fractured and it is fighting and the fighting is getting ferocious. And now we have this terrible sin that is brought into the family. And here is Rachel's take on it that shows you how far away she is from the Lord. And it's the kind of take that our culture is expert at, at adopting. Rachel says this in verse 6. God has vindicated me. He did nothing of the sort. He did nothing of the sort. God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. The fact she had a son by uh, a, a fertile Bilhah is not an affirmation that she did the right thing. No matter what you call it, no matter what spin you put on it, or what rationalization you attach to it, uh, no matter how many baby showers you have for the little guy, no matter what it is that you do, it doesn't make it right. And our culture is very quick to rationalize any sin in the book. While we were in love, well, we, we, we just knew that this was right. We just felt. Uh, I always remember Debbie Boone singing, uh, You Light Up My Life. And, and you know how I won't ask you to join in the chorus, and I promise not to sing it to you. But it ends up with that very famous line, It can't be wrong because it seems so right. Now, it is wrong when God calls it wrong. And here is this poor woman, Rachel, and she's all over the map. And she's thinking, think somehow that this is all going to be happy, 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 and it's lousy. It's laden with sin. And so here she is. Her discontent has led her to becoming delinquent and deluded, and she finds herself involved in, in what is almost uh, uh, making her husband into an adulterer by basically pimping out Bilhah. That's what she did. Bilhah goes with the understanding that she's, she's the maiden. She's looking after Rachel. It's one of those bargains that comes because Laban was, was, uh, had a lot of money, a lot of property, uh, the whole nine yards. And he was able to say to Leah, here, here's a servant girl for you. Rachel, here's a servant girl for you. And that was it. And Rachel converts it into this relationship. 
Now, as a result of this taking place, you notice what happened after. Verse 7, Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again. Now she's repeating it. All she's done is multiplied her sin. And when we uh, follow our own whim, we multiply sin. And by this time, we begin to see something taking place here. Now we see the heart of these women, Leah and Rachel. And they're not going around with their Thompson Chain Reference Bible doing personal Bible studies. Now we understand something. Rachel says in verse 8, with mighty wrestling, I have wrestled with my sister and I have indeed prevailed. How fallen she is. How confused she is. By having Jacob involved in this adulterous affair with her handmaiden, not just once, but twice. And Rachel is so lost and so, so into herself and what I want and how I want it and how I get it. And the main thing is I get what I want. And that's our culture, isn't it? I want what I want when I want it. And I want it now. And we have this culture that has been brought up on this go-for-it mentality. Whatever, how harebrained the idea might be. Oh, go for it. Oh, yeah, go, do that. And she regards this as a pre prevailing over her sister. She regards it as a conquest. She says, I have prevailed. Uh, committing adultery and putting out your, 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 your maiden to commit adultery is hardly what we would call prevailing over your sister. But Rachel did. Now we're going to see the other side of the coin. And the other side of the coin is the Leah side of the coin. Because all of a sudden, Leah realizes something. Wait a minute. Rachel's having all the baby showers now. What about me? She had stopped bearing children. And we're going to find at this point... Leah departs from the naming of children and the theology behind the naming of children, and she becomes exactly the same as Rachel. When we lose our sight upon the Lord of glory, we act in most unglorious ways. Lose our sight on a holy God. And we mentioned this morning in the book of Leviticus, what's the theme of Leviticus? Be holy, be holy, be holy, be holy. The presence of God, holy in his presence, holy in his worship, a sanctified life, a life separated from the world, and that is to characterize God's people. And here we have this woman, Leah, and now she's going to fall into the same trap as Rachel, and we're going to find out something about her further. She had stopped bearing, and so what did she do? She did exactly what Rachel did. She gets her maidservant. Zilpa, and she gives her to Jacob as a wife. And I want to say something at this point, and it's this. As uncomplimentary as Rachel is acting, and as uncomplimentary and as sinful as Leah is acting, we need to know something, and it's this, that Jacob is the head. Jacob is the man, and he is acting anything but manly. He had the ability to say, no, no. No, this is not going to happen. I'm not going to fall into this sin. He did it twice, falling into sin with Rachel's handmaiden. And now Leah comes up, cooks up the same idea. 
And now we have Jacob again caving in and falling into sin. And now, now he has four wives. Now I know that in, in the passage of, of reading scriptures that uh, Leah and, and Rachel and being regarded as the wives, but what's the language of scripture? Rachel gave her handmaid as his wife. She performed the marriage and she declared that she was his wife. Why did she do that? Because of pagan king Hammurabi. He didn't mind seeing his, his uh, subjects multiplying wives. And Leah does the same thing. As a result, we have Leah's maid, verse 10. And what do we read? Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Now there's something interesting as we see how this plays through. We're going to see the disintegration of any form of spirituality in this woman. Sin will do that. Leah's made, verse 10, Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Leah said, how fortunate, which in our parlance would be, how lucky. She's not thinking as a spiritual woman. She's a whirling, and she's thinking that way. Remember how spiritual she was? My husband will love me because I have borne him children. The Lord has given me. Praise the Lord. And now we're talking about being fortunate. And then in verse uh, 12, Leah's maid Zilpah bore a second son. And that only made sense because uh, Bilhah gave two sons to Jacob. And it only is making sense to have equal time. And as a reason, now Zilpah, second son. Now Leah says, happy am I. Why does this woman say she's happy? For women will call me happy. Oh, okay. We're, we're, we're to be proud about that? That's to be a status symbol? That the world revolves around whether my happy meter is, is high or whether my happy meter is And somehow if my happy meter is high, all is out of me. And if my happy meter happens to be low, boy, this world's going to adopt the, the, the idea that somehow there is a doctrine of hell on earth. Now, uh, that's not our doctrine. We don't believe that hell is on earth where hell is. But here she is, and she's saying, oh, I'm happy. This is it. This works. It doesn't work. It never works. And sin is multiplied in this family. We came a long way from, or fell a long way from Isaac having one wife, Rebecca. And we have this, this character, the deceiver, Jacob, fathering children by his legitimate wife and two handmaidens. It's sad, isn't it? To fall so far, to fall away from what God has called us to be. And what we see is this bitter rivalry between these women. And now we have, we must move on, down to verse 14, we come to the first recorded uh, fruit fight in the Bible. And uh, here it is, and it's all bizarre. Now in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. If you're using a, a MacArthur Bible, I think it says uh, that they're, they're like little berries. And... Uh, they are regarded to uh, help women be fertile. 
So this is the kind of stuff that you buy in Chinese drugstore in uh, Spadina down in Toronto. Uh, here, here's this love potion. And now they're going to fight about this. Now, mandrakes come in different sizes and all the rest and different shapes and different color berries and different color leaves and so forth. And, and sometimes you boil the root and, and it makes just a wonderful drink. Some of you have ever run into something uh, called barley green uh, or mandrakes. <laughs> Some of you poor people have. And, and I friend that bought a whole bunch of bottles of this stuff and he made a discovery. Uh, it, it didn't make him feel good immediately, but it always tasted bad. And uh, one night he decided to torture myself and the other deacons present with a, a shot of this stuff. It was my first and last shot of this stuff. And I thought to myself, uh, I'm feeling good when I came in and I'm feeling absolutely miserable now that I've had a slug of this. Well, they boiled the roots. Sometimes they ate the berries. And uh, the roots were supposed to be sort of a, a youth formula, and, and they would keep you young forever. And the berries were supposed to be uh, a, a wonderful love potion. If you had those, then you were definitely going to have children and uh, have some berries and, and spend some time with your husband and then go to the drugstore and buy the baby book so you'll know what to call the baby when all that happens. Now they're fighting about this. Now notice how this plays out. Rachel sees the berries in the hand of Reuben, and she says, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. And now we're going to fight over this. And she said to her, is it a small matter for you to take my husband? Because Leah knew who had Jacob's heart. Is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And now you're going to take my son's mandrakes as well? So Rachel said, and she makes a trade. And it's fruit for Jacob. Now, it doesn't get much worse than this. But that's exactly what it is. So Rachel says, therefore, he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So she's going to stop mandrakes. And Leah wins Jacob for a night. Now, that's crass. That's what it is. But that's the morality of the world, isn't it? The world is with its sin. And when it decides it wants something, no sin is too small in procuring. And here we have these women cheapening themselves and Jacob cheapening himself. And he's coming in from the field and he's expecting a night with Rachel. And Leah comes and she is going to meet him. And she lets him know this and it's very upfront. And it shows you how desperately wicked these people have become. These are, these are God's people. It's not pretty. And notice what happens. Here's the language that is used. You must come into me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. In other words, I have purchased you with a handful of berries. That's it. How flattering is that? How esteeming is that? How holy is that? And it's none of the above. As a result, verse 17, God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And then Leah says in verse 18, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar, and Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son. His name is Jebulun. And then, Later on in verse 21, 
she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. And now we read as we come to an end, and you're probably exhausted by all of this because it is tiring and it's hard to put all this together. And it's not, uh, it's not the easiest thing to present either. But finally, verse 22, the Lord remembered Rachel. God remembered her. Didn't, he didn't forget her. But it's this point where he sets his mind upon her. And God gave heed to her and opened her womb. Now, it's very important for us to think this through. What has taken place in verse 22 is this. Rachel prayed. She prayed. How do we know that? Don't say she prayed. Ah, God gave heed to her. He gave heed to her. Now the giving of heed here is not, it's not the same as having regard for her. He already remembered her in verse 22. He already regarded her in verse 22. But he gave heed to her. And what we see for the very first time in, in Rachel's life is some inquiry after God. There was never any inquiry after God through all the shenanigans that she was involved in. There was never any asking God for his will. There was never any praying to God in all that was taking place in this passage. It starts off where she bore no children and she's mad and she says, give me children or I die. But she, she's not presenting herself as a praying woman. And finally, it's at this point where she is acknowledging God. And so as a result of it, she conceived verse 23 and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph and said, may the Lord give me another son. All of a sudden, God's come into the picture. And things look a lot different. And don't things look a lot different in people's lives when God comes into the picture? And isn't it utterly disastrous when God is left out of the picture when God is not the first thought, God is the last thought. And all this time, could she have been praying? Could she have been calling out to God? Absolutely. It was not that God was away. Remember Elijah taunting the, the, uh, the, the Baal worshipers? Well, maybe, maybe your God's away. Maybe he's hunting on vacation or something. God's not hunting. God's not on vacation. He's the true and living God. And she should have known to come to him in prayer. She didn't. She came up with these schemes, these ideas that brought sin and sin and sin into the house. And so this is the very first time in verse 24 that Rachel mentions the Lord. Should have been a lot sooner. Wonder what could have been avoided. If it had been a lot sooner, we don't know. We're not in the what if business. We're in the what is, what happened ministry. And that's what happened. We need to learn that God is first place, not third, fourth, fifth. He's the first call. He's not the last resort. And many, many times we have, and you know people, and I know people whose lives are characterized by prayerlessness and then something messy happens in their lives. And what happens then? I need prayer. Pray for me. 
call the church, call the prayer line. I need help. I'm in a mess. And all of a sudden, time goes by and the mess flies away. And this should have been the time of thanksgiving and giving praise to God and coming uh, to be a part of God's family, joining with his people and being in the, the front line, standing up and singing praise God from whom all blessings flow. What happens? The crisis is over. The crisis is over. The sad thing about that is this. There's another crisis just around the corner. And God, again, will be the last resort. And how sad that is. How sad that is to observe. How sad that is to observe over a number of years. It's hard enough to observe it in our children. But what happens when the children are no longer children? And now we're up 30, 40, 50. Now it's like the gas meter running when you gas up. And here there's still no interest and no calling upon God. And how different it would have been if she had only prayed. And if she had only obeyed. And how different it would have been if Jacob had only prayed and Jacob had only obeyed. As we close, we are going to close by singing Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Let's bow before him in prayer, shall we? Father, we bow before you. We pray, Lord God, that you would speak to our hearts this night, teach us from your word. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to bring honor and glory to you, to call upon you, to call upon you first, to call upon you often, to call upon you patiently, for it is they who wait upon the Lord who will renew their strength, not those that call and upon you and give you a few seconds to respond. So teach us, Lord, the patience of fervent prayer, continuous prayer, and seeking your will and only your will. And grant us a discernment to know the difference between our foolish whims and your holy will. We pray this in Jesus' name.